uh, Green Economy Canada, uh, which is a fantastic, you know, national level organization working to strengthen Canada's green economy. And we have uh, Linda Lukashik, who's really a sector leader and has been, you know, uh, a source of, of wisdom and inspiration for, for the years that I've known her, is the founder, co-founder and executive director of Environment Hamilton. So uh, tonight's panel, as I said, is looking at that balance between mission and good governance. And the premise is this, you know, a lot of us are in this sector, uh, presumably all of us are in this sector because we really uh, want to get important work done. You know, we've founded or co-founded organizations or we've stepped up to lead organizations because the environment deserves it and because there's lots of important work to do there. And sometimes there's a bit of a tension between accomplishing these important missions that we have set out for ourselves and keeping the proverbial lights on, making sure that the ship is running smoothly, that, that governance is, is being conducted well and effectively. And so tonight we'd love to hear from uh, uh, perspectives on how this gets done, how, how folks balance these things. So we're going to have a conversation throughout. Folks are invited, uh, attendees are, are, are very welcome to enter questions in the chat. And uh, one of the portions of the uh, uh, conversation will look specifically at those questions. Of course, we might answer them midway through, but if not, we're gonna spend a fair amount of time towards the end answering questions uh, from the audience. So there we go. Without any further ado, let me turn it over to my wonderful uh, panelists. And I thought I'd set this up with a bit of a question that, that allows uh, each of them to provide some background on themselves and, and how they came to this work. So the question is, can you tell us about yourself and your organization, and, and in some cases multiple organizations, what was it about the organization that most appealed to you when you founded it or when you decided to step up and lead it? So Linda, why don't we start with you and hear your story about, about Environment Hamilton, how you came to it, and, and what was it that appealed to you about Environment Hamilton? Sure. So, so Environment Hamilton is now over 20 years old, and I'm a co-founder. So, <laughs> so the story goes a couple of decades back. And, and for me, it was being very actively engaged at the grassroots level in Hamilton on a, a big environmental issue, and that was trying to save Red Hill Valley from an expressway. Um, and many of us who were involved in that battle, it, it was you know, civ civic engagement at, at, at a big, in a big way. Um, and I think what we learned from being very directly engaged was there was a need in Hamilton for an environmental organization with paid staff who could do both public education, outreach, and advocacy. Um, so from, uh, from that grassroots battle was born an organization. Um, and, it, and for me, it ended up becoming uh, a ready-made uh, job opportunity as well. Um, so, so rooted in community and, and it emerged out of an identified, a collectively identified need for uh, more, more environmental work to be done. And, and I think acknowledging again that, that value of having an organization with paid staff to focus on that work. Wonderful. Thanks, Linda. That sounds like the, the very essence of grassroots right there. Uh, how about you, Priyanka? Over to you. Uh, let's hear your story. I know that you that you co-founded your organization and that you're currently leading it as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, hi, everyone. So Green Economy Canada launched in, in 2014, and our mission is to engage businesses uh, to transition to a vibrant and inclusive net zero future. So my personal story is that um, my background is in, in biochemistry. I decided after getting a master's in biochemistry that I didn't really know what to do still, and so I went and got an MBA. And uh, when I got my MBA at Wilfrid Laurier University, there was a, a really influential professor there by the name of Dr. Barry Colbert, um, who started to, to teach us about the fact that you could you know, turn capitalism on its head and start to use business as a force for good. And um, that concept really caught me. Um, and when I graduated, I went and worked um, in the private sector, hoping to be sort of a social entrepreneur to be able to you know, change an organization from within. And really quickly realized that in terms of where I got my joy and satisfaction, you know, needing to be more connected directly to the impact that I was trying to make um, and wanting to be more connected to different stakeholders who could help make that impact happen. So um, in 2014, I co-founded uh, what was then called Sustainability Collab, now rebranded to Green Economy Canada. Uh, with the Green Party uh, MP, uh, Mike Morris. Um, and so, you know, uh, 
taking a successful model from Waterloo Region of engaging businesses at the community level to take action on climate change and thinking about how we could scale that sort of grassroots movements to, to other communities across Canada. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I am today, and I'm really enjoying the work that I'm doing at the intersection of business, civil society, and, and government. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, Sabrina, now, now when I listed off your name, there are a number of organizations that you've been affiliated with over the years. Can you tell us about, I don't know if you want to talk about all of them at once or, or certain specific ones. Uh, what's your story? I mean, I, I've been around. I've been around the sector for a long time. Um, yeah, you know, when I was when I was a teenager, I sort of had this awakening. I, I joined the uh, youth committee of the Toronto Environmental Alliance and like, you know, got my first taste of what an NGO does. Um, and I, because I was the youth representative, I ended up going to their board retreat. I was like 15. I had no idea what was happening, but it was fascinating to me and like very exciting. Um, and actually quite progressive on their end to invite me to go. And so I got a first taste of sort of what the governance side of organizations look like. Um, and I also realized at that age that um, I was really interested in not-for-profit work. Um, so I won't talk about all the experiences, but but through sort of a, a number of funny coincidences, I ended up doing a lot of different jobs in the not-for-profit sector. It started with Ecology Ottawa doing sort of coordination, which included a little bit of everything. Um, uh, then I did some fundraising specialization. I did some running events and, and projects with the Ottawa Riverkeeper. I um, did fundraising with um, a couple of different organizations, went to the States, did some blurring there, came back, was going to be a fundraiser. And then as it all often happens in our sector, I got a job posting for a campaigner at Environmental Defense. Never had camp didn't have campaigner experience, but applied and got hired um, and did that for three and a half years, got kind of bit by the climate change bug, um, was really happy there and then got a phone call from somebody I had known from Ecology Ottawa who was like, we need somebody to run our election campaign at Green Pack. Um, and if you take this, we'll build you into an executive director. And I had known by that point that that was something I was really interested in. I, I felt um, really excited by the idea of um, stepping into that position and um, you know like it was a new organization it had just been founded um, and putting all of the systems in place understanding where the organization was going and doing some of the strategic thinking was really appealing to me so that's how I ended up um, at Green Pack and for those who don't know Green Pack is um, an organization that's trying to build environmental leadership in politics um, works a lot in the election space, also has a really neat parliamentary internship for the environment so if you know any young folks who are environmental leaders send them to the the internship it's great it's an amazing experience um yeah and and, and um it was my dream job it was my dream job so i finished there i now work at toronto metropolitan university's leadership lab um, and i'm kind of trying to figure out what i'm going to be when i grow up because i did my dream job of being an executive director and uh now i'm trying to figure out what's next <laughs> Thanks for that, Sabrina. And maybe we'll stay with you because you've got this very extensive track record, right? Well, you've seen a lot of different organizations try, presumably, tackle their problems in a bunch of different ways. So when you were executive director, how did you divide up your time? And uh, how has that evolved over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. Oh, I also just want to say I recognize a lot of people in the room today and that a lot of them have a lot of expertise. So I'd encourage, uh, Priyanka was, was suggesting this earlier, like we encourage you to put your thoughts in the chat as well. Um, you know, I think that every executive director is different. It's their own style to the job. And for me, I had a real focus, especially um, early on for me, staff wellness and staff um, happiness was very important. Um, I don't think I always nailed it, but I did spend a lot of time on, uh, you know, one-on-ones with my staff, like making sure they were happy, problem solving, troubleshooting, all that stuff. That was really a priority for me. Um, I also tried to push strategic direction and I've done this there. I've also done this on boards that I've been on to try to make sure organizations are like looking forward. And then how do we avoid the dreaded mission drift? How do we make sure that we're staying focused again? Did I nail it? I don't think so, but like I tried, you know, and, and I was very young too. I was, you know, I started that job. Uh, I started, be, I became the executive director, I think when I was 34 and, uh, and I'm 39 now and um, maybe it was 33, I'm not even sure, but I, I didn't, you know, so, so I would say too that uh, I'm also learning. So a lot of my time was spent kind of figuring it out. I'm not sure that 
I had, I, in fact, I know that I didn't have like a set plan for how each day was going to look. Um, a lot of the time, I think a lot of people here will have had this experience that basically, you know, sometimes it was just putting out the fires, right? So I really try, had to focus on cutting out that time for things like strategic planning. The longer term visioning stuff can get really, really lost in the day to day. And I think that I also evolved over my time as executive director that I really started out just kind of trying to understand what was happening and like, you know, had some pretty funny experiences like, you know, one day I might spend two hours getting a free chair on, on Kijiji and rolling it, you know, into the subway and down the streets of Toronto, which is something I actually did. It was the second time in my career that I have rolled a free office chair through a downtown to get into my organization. <laughs> you know, so there was that like, but there's everything from that to like, creating the fundraising plan to hiring the staff to figuring out, you know, severe HR issues to um, helping with project management, um, board relations, all that. For me, no day ever looked the same. And I I don't think I was consciously choosing how to organize my time. I imagine that other people on this panel have a better sense of how to do that. But that's something that I think I, uh, I think that it was always changing, which is appealing to somebody who has a brain that's a little bit unfocused, uh, but also sometimes is a problem in terms of actually figuring out where to put my time. So over to you, Linda, have you figured out with, you said 20 years ago, Environment Hamilton was, was co-founded and you've been leading it since then. Have you figured out how to be an executive director at this stage or do you feel like you're still evolving? Uh, what have you learned in terms of how you divide up your time? Yeah, I, I, I want to say, I think it was Sabrina who said she's still trying to figure out what she wants to be when she grows up. And I, and I, I feel the same way, I'll be honest. You know, it, it's, it's an evolving sort of role. And, and I think about when I jumped in all those years ago and and I jumped in as an activist. So I think that's always been part of the way Environment Hamilton has functioned. So you, you know, sometimes I'll talk to EVs of other organizations and, and it's a lot of a focus on administrative responsibilities. And I know moving into the, the role that I have now, I, I knew I couldn't do it if I, if I couldn't still also, you know, be getting my hands dirty and my feet wet on the issues that are so important for our organization. So it's a bit of a melding together of, of continuing to be an, an activist and, and an environmental educator um, and taking on all of the other tasks that an, an executive director would be responsible for. So, so I guess organic is a good way to describe it. Um, and it is one of those things where, you know, again, I can relate to the rolling the desk chair down the street kind of approach as well, where I think we've always functioned as an organization where there's nothing I would ask my staff to do that I wouldn't do myself. Um, and I think, I think for us as a small on the ground grassroots environmental organization, that's been, that's been very important for the organizational culture. Um, within and and I think as well in the way that we interact with the community too. Um, so yeah, I, you know it's yeah definitely very organic. We do what we need to do to keep the organization running. And for me, that's that's involved wear, wearing all the, the hats that you need to wear to keep um, to keep an organization functioning. You, Priyanka, if you think about your background, you know, you said you, you got an MBA and then you went into the sector with that, you know, really, really kind of strong business training. Um, any surprises along the way? Have you changed how you do your job uh, based on, on your experience today? Yeah, I mean, I I would strongly, you know, echo what Sabrina and Linda have said that, you know, to, to do this job, you definitely need to be a jack of all trades, I think, and, um, you know, be willing to kind of embrace uh, what what comes even when you don't feel like you're you're ready for it or that you necessarily have any training um i don't know i'm not a lawyer but i read a lot of legal documents and try to make sure that things are okay and um likewise just have learned a ton on the the finance side and all different aspects of nonprofit leadership i think too just the different phases that our organizations go through um means that our leadership style needs to also change and evolve um, and you know one of the big uh, challenges in the sector is the financial instability uh, that we have and so you know for our organization we've gone through several boom and bust cycles which have had us you know balloon and stuff and then shrink all the way down to you know back down to four, four people and the kind of role that you need to take on as an ED when you're, you know, the sort staff size I have now is 17 people. We've grown in the last one to two years from four to 17 people. The, the leadership challenges I have now and evolving my leadership style to pull out of the 
things that I used to be so involved in, um, that's a solution for me. Um, and part of that is, you know, building up or having institutional knowledge and memory in the organization that you can step out of the day-to-day to be able to focus on the strategic. That's really hard when you don't have financial stability to kind of retain staff or, or keep that going. And then thinking about too, like how do you build up the talent talent pipeline so that you can have that, that kind of longevity. It's so critical both to, you know, avoid ED burnout, but also to just to make sure that um, you're not a bottleneck, like quite frankly. So, um, and, and that's still a journey for me is trying to, you know, I have so many new staff trying to translate the institutional knowledge that I have and make sure that we're doing, making good decisions with still recognizing that, you know, I cannot be involved in the breadth of the things that I'm involved with um, if this organization is going to continue to grow as well as, you know, make sure that our staff are empowered. So those are just some tidbits. Great. Thank you so much, Priyanka. So I've got a quick housekeeping uh, piece. One is thank you very much, everyone, for uh, participating in the chat. It's, it's, it's vibrant. We're getting people calling in from all areas of the country. We're getting uh, First Nations. We've got someone, I think, in Peru, or at least originally from Peru, now in Montreal. So, so uh, wonderful to see such a, such a great diversity of folks uh, joining us. As, as mentioned, we're going to be looking at Q&A. So if you've got questions, I noticed that some people are putting them in the chat please also put them in the Q&A part. There's a, at the bottom of your screen, you can see questions and answers. You put them in there and then that way it's a lot easier for us to kind of find and go through. So at about 4.35, you know, unless a question just jumps out at us, we're gonna be turning over to the Q&A and trying to go deep uh, there. So let me turn this over uh, back to you, Priyanka. So here's a question about regrets. Uh, have you ever let something important but not urgent slip? and regretted it. And here the idea is, and I think Sabrina mentioned this, right? The idea of your, there's all these stuff, all these things that are that are burning issues, right? They are important and urgent, right? But then there are these important but less urgent things that we sometimes let slide. And sometimes to our detriment, we let them slide. So, so just wondering if you have any, you know, stories about regrets, uh, things that, that you let kind of maybe linger too long before addressing it, maybe on the governance side, uh, any kind of challenges that you encountered along the way. Yeah, I, I don't have a, a big story to share from that perspective. I'm sure that there's many things, um, uh, you know, that I could pull with, with a little bit of time to think about that. I mean, I think one of the, the pieces there, so there's always challenges around, you know, keeping policies up to date, um, thinking about succession planning and what do you do if the, you know, key person on your team is not there anymore because life, life changes and they can't always exist. Um, there's lots, so lots of pieces around that. You know, planning and making sure that there's resiliency in the organization. Um, I would say, you know, just going back to those kinds of boom, boom and bust cycles too. I think there's a piece here, not just for for people, but also thinking about, you know, your your funding relationships and also the kind of work that you're doing. Um, and so, you know, it can be really easy to uh, have an exciting idea. You have people that are uh, willing to invest in the idea. You get the grant to do the work for a couple of years, but you're not really thinking about, you know, what happens when that grant grant ends or, you know, when, when that, that project comes to a natural conclusion and, you know, all the implications around that, both for your financials, both for, you know, the mission of the organization and the people that you're able to retain. and. And so, um, yeah, for sure, I think, you know, for us, we had uh, quite a bit of funding that came from the Ontario uh, government. And when the government switched over in uh, 2018, uh, we lost $2 million. Um, and that was huge. And we had no other sort of planning in place to figure out, you know, how do we fill that gap? What else can we do? And that had huge implications for our organization. Um, you know, in hindsight, do I regret that? I'm not sure because truthfully, I don't know that we had the capacity to be to be managing all of those different streams. But to me, that's an example of, you know, something that speaks to the importance of being able to do the proactive work and being able to think about resiliency from multiple dimensions. And um, yeah, I think it's an ongoing challenge in our sector for how do we actually do that? So thank you very much, Priyanka. So over to you, Sabrina. Is there any, has there ever been this slow ember burning in the corner that you've kind of watched day over day and then you turned around and then one day it had just gone out of control? Any stories to share? Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's so many. You know, I think one of the things that I thought about a lot when I was executive director was like, like put the ball in the air. Like I had balls in the air, I had balls rolling under the couch. I had balls that rolled out the room, probably like went to another country. I never saw them again. I 
you know, there's so much that I definitely miss. I mean, hopefully, like, no, not many of my future employers are on this call, but this is definitely true. And, um, and I think, I think one of the things that, um, I mean, I was always, like, kind of late on a lot of the admin things. I would, uh, you know, I would just, like, not get it done on time. I would get some stuff done on time. There's a lot that I was late with. Um, and sometimes it felt a bit like I wasn't making a decision for it to be late. It would just happen. Um, so one of the things that I think I take, I took from that experience that I eventually learned, um, but kind of in the last year or so, is know your own strengths and weaknesses as an executive director specifically and hire accordingly. So towards the end of my time at Greenpeace, I hired an admin assistant because I had this realization. I was like, I'm not that organized. I'm not that organized. And so I really need somebody who can help me be on top of these little things that keep these balls keep rolling, you know, down the street and out of the country. I need somebody who can catch those balls. I need somebody who's going to help me, who's going to keep me accountable and say, okay, Sabrina, we need you to get this thing signed or this check written or whatever. Because I was spending too much of my time trying to figure out how to do that stuff. And I wasn't good at it. So so knowing who, you know, but, I, but I'm a good fundraiser, right? So I, I think that my going to meet with funders was a good use of my time because I could speak to the organization. I knew how to raise money. I wasn't afraid to do it. But I would say if you're an executive director who is not good at fundraising, get somebody in who is good at that, who can help train you how to do that. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing around sort of like the small person is that, uh, you know, they like they're always and the other thing I say it's a little bit of self forgiveness because those small numbers are always going to be there um, and sometimes we're just going to mess up and and like people you know one of the things that I'll say that I had a realization about recently and then I'll, I'll pass is that one of my staff there was a point at which we were doing so much that I had somebody else kind of managing a piece of the work that we were doing um, who, who wasn't me like a board member because I said to them look if you want to do this that's fine but I cannot be involved because I just have too many other things to do so I took it on but then I think as a result some of the staff who were working on that project got a little bit burned out and um, it, was really, it was really great but it was really stressful and I wish that as executive director I had been a little more on top of the relationship with the staff that were working on that project because I think they came out of that experience you know with some stress right and some, some personal angst so I that's one of the ones that I was like oh yeah I'm not sure I could have done it differently but I kind of wish I had you know with that, I'll pass. Yeah, it's, and, and, we're, and I'm starting to see the questions pop up in the Q&A, and I think we'll revisit that, the idea, of, especially on the staffing and HR side, some interesting questions about how to get the balance right. Uh, have you ever let something important but not urgent slip and then lived to regret it? Yeah, and, and I think, I, I mean, I think it was something that was important. So, <laughs> um, and this is just very generally and I just want to speak to this a little bit, you know, being from a really grassroots organization and thinking about the money side of things. Um, I think over, over when I reflect on the last couple of decades, I can just see how as an organization, we've evolved and grown. And I feel like I have too, as you know, someone sitting in the role, sitting in around, just feeling more comfortable with how we approach money and fundraising. Um, and it's something that we probably should have tackled sooner than we did. And, and I don't know how if others have this experience, but I, I think often, especially as environmental activists, we're not comfortable with tooting our own horns when it comes to asking for money. So for us, it's been a lot of work in, in pushing and learning how to do fundraising um, and making sure that we're tapping into all of those opportunities and, and particularly where donations from individuals are concerned. So you know, for us, it's been been a matter of over a number of years now trying to build our base of monthly donors for instance and that was something that you know 10 years ago 15 years ago we weren't thinking about as much as we are now but realizing that to stay uh, agile and resilient in the work that we do um, that this is the, the best pathway forward um, so I think on reflection had I known that at the start how important um, support from just individuals in your community um, is for ensuring that you continue to function as an organization with more stability. Um, I would have started that a long time ago. So I think that's just one example of what I would describe as a bit of a burning number that we should have grabbed onto in front of sooner. Great, great. Now, we talked about governance, right? This is part of the, the title of today's talk, but 
you know, what is it really? I mean, so governance is, you know, to a certain extent, it impacts organizational culture. It's kind of how, how we run these organizations. I guess when I think of some of the elements, I think of things like, you know, staff support, human resources structure, internal bylaws. Uh, you know, people have mentioned the money piece in terms of the, the fund development element, fund, fundraising as well, uh, board succession, strategic planning. Um, so, so there's a long list, right? And, and to a certain extent, it's, it's quite all encompassing. But when you think of it, you know, Linda, maybe I'll turn this over to you. What are the elements of good governance that sometimes go overlooked in an organization? Uh, and what have you done specifically to address uh, this need? Yeah, well, I, again, speaking from the perspective of a smaller, locally focused organization, I would say just the formalizing um, elements of governance. I think that's always a struggle when you're a small organization. So the, the you know having those basic policies on the books and keeping them updated, I think um, that can be really challenging when there's so much else that you're juggling as an organization, uh, including at the board level. And and that sometimes varies over time too, right? I mean, I think if anything, I've found over the years uh, as an organization, we, we have what I would describe as an activist board. Um, and and the level of interest in pieces like policy and the, the nuts and bolts of governance varies depending on the board composition as well. Um, so I don't have any good answers for how you make sure that those pieces get dealt with all of the time. Um, I, I have found in my experience that within an organization, you just sort of instinctively, I would say this happens at both the board and the staff level, you know when you've hit points in your history where you need to revisit your strategic plan, you need to update and, and ensure that everyone's aligned in terms of the organization's vision. Um, and, and we're all working in a very uh, dynamic realm, you know, with, with environment, you know, environmental justice, social justice issues. Uh, I, I know organizations, we really try to stay in the forefront of what the key issues are, so, so that also influences how frequently and the kinds of approaches that you use within your organization to revisit mission, vision and values and, and adjust accordingly. So I don't know if that answers your question. I feel like for us, it, it's, it's been very organic and, and I'm not going to lie. I think, I think as an organization, we haven't been fixated on written policy as, as much as we have been on, you know, just important and regular strategic conversations about the direction the organization is heading. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's a tension that's at the heart of, of many of our organizations, which is you know why why we talk it through. So great, I think it was a great answer, great insight. So Priyanka, you mentioned you have sometimes your your staff, and I've, I've said this before at my old job, it's like an accordion where like you can get squeeze it down to like four people, and then it kind of booms back up to seventeen. So it sounds like you've dealt with all sorts of different staffing permutations over the years. Have you thought about, um, you know, do you have some of those, you, you mentioned too, I, I think interestingly, where you said, you know, maybe we weren't equipped to have handled that large grant or that large project, right? So so do you have elements of good governance that, that, that you've been working to strengthen that you see that often go uh, overlooked in an organization? Are there things that you've been paying particular uh, emphasis, uh, focus on? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a couple, um, and I can decouple maybe some of the strategies we found effective to, to deal with that. But uh, you know, the financial piece is a big one for organizations. It's it's a big one in that it's a big time sink if it's uh, not well organized, and it's a big one because there's a liability attached to it, uh, which also has you know implications for your your board of directors. Um, and so, really honing in on what exactly are our financial processes? Who is responsible for what? When do things get updated? Um, and having a regular accountability mechanism, you know, for example, our, we have quarterly board meetings and at those quarterly board meetings, we report on our financials. And even if we're not great at following a regular process on a weekly or monthly basis like we aspire to, we make sure that in time for that board meeting, you know, the books are totally up to date and we feel good. And that process surfaces then things that we've been overlooking or neglecting to then have raise a conversation about what are we doing to fix this? Because nobody wants to keep going through this process on a quarterly basis. It's just taking too much time. Um, 
Um, I think the other thing that sort of helped with that, to to Sabrina's point, is I mean, this and maybe this is not so much about that the strengths piece. I think is really important. Know your strengths to know where best to spend your time. But what has really been important for us is that um, somebody else in the organization is accountable for these things. So what I find is like. You know, if I'm the only person that knows how to update the policy or I'm the only person that knows this grant and where it goes and how much money is going to the staff person, chances are the books are going to stay messy. Chances are that nobody's going to be able to move the work forward because it's dependent on me to give all of the answers. Um, and so to really be able to have someone else not only trained but looking out and responsible for, for you know, keeping those things humming is an important piece. And then having those accountability structures, for example, whether that's a board meeting, whether that's having an annual plan where, you know, you're creating that plan, not in a reactive mode, but thinking about the things that need to get done, where you have an operational component. What are the things that on a quarterly or annual basis, we're going to look back on and say a year from now, these things need to be changed. We're going to feel happy about doing them. And here's the measurable, you know, progress we can achieve. Um, those structures are really important to help keep me accountable in making sure that the organization is looking after sort of the due diligence pieces that it needs and um, yeah, making sure we can scale. Great. Now, Sabrina, over to you. We talked earlier, you mentioned staff, I think on two occasions, you mentioned a recent project where there was this, this bit of like a risk of burnout, right? It was a very exhausting project, a very ambitious project. And you also mentioned earlier in the conversation, you said something like, and, and, and let me know if this is right, but you said something like when you started as ED, you had a really strong focus on on the staff wellness piece, on, on staff feeling like they belong. How has that evolved over your approach to staffing and HR issues? So has that changed over the years? Has it evolved? Um, yeah, has it evolved? Has it changed? Um, I mean, certainly I'm learning a lot more like I had to fire somebody when I was ED. I'd never done that before. That was a real journey and I was very grateful because I had, um, and I'll, I, I may talk about this a bit later, but I had somebody on the board who was specifically, her specific job was to check in with me every two weeks and ask how I was feeling. <laughs> Which is very helpful. Um, uh, and I'll talk more about that later, but I, I, I think that, yeah, I, it's has it changed. I think one of the things that I learned is um, previous to being an executive director, I was often friends with my colleagues. Like I, I was like, we'd hang out, we'd go have lunch, we'd talk about our personal lives. When I became an executive director, it became very clear that 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 I still had camaraderie, camaraderie with my colleagues, but because I was their boss, it did change the relationship significantly. And in fact, there was one incident where my colleague, who I got along with really well, would tell me, she's like, oh yeah, you know, me and the summer students, we go and have lunch regularly and like I had this moment of just being like why do I get invited to lunch I want to go to lunch too but then I was like right it's actually very important for them to have their own time and to have their own time to talk about the organization to not have the boss there or she liked to call me she's like you're my boss and she was the boss of the summer students so I was like the grand boss of the summer students but they need their time away right like I have to you have to understand that there is a power dynamic there um and that and that your staff or, or even no matter how much you are, you kind of get along, like there is a line. And so I did keep more personal stuff to myself. I didn't talk about it with my staff because it didn't feel appropriate. Um, and the only other thing I'd say that's, that's really changed for me, and this also goes in the regrets category, I did not do a good job on diversity and inclusion at Greenpack, I think, in comparison to what I would have liked to achieve. I knew it was important and I just couldn't, I didn't want to go into it in sort of a half-assed way and just like, you know, like hand wavy, try to address DNI, um, and I didn't have, I didn't have the capacity, didn't have the training. So when I left Greenpack, I actually ended up being, I become a bit <laughs> like almost militant on this issue that I, I, I brought it to the past two organizations I've been in in a pretty serious way. I really pushed them on it because I think it's really important. I think it's an area that I've had to do a lot of personal work in. I've had to do a lot of my own decolonization, my own anti-racism training. I'm still working in this area. I'm learning a lot right now about disability, um, ageism. Like there's all this stuff that I didn't really put the time into when I was at Greenpath, um, for better or for worse. And th so I think that element of staff is something that I'm, I'm trying to learn more about around power dynamics and things like that. And I think our sector, especially in the environment, frankly, to be having these conversations we're getting better but we're not there yet yeah thanks for that that answer uh certainly 
certainly thought about it over the years, right? And uh, and obviously always reflecting and always iterating. So you know, I see now it's 4.36. Um, we're now at a point where we would normally uh, jump to questions and answers. But I think what I'll do right before that is uh, maybe just uh, bend your ears a bit and uh, tell you a little bit about uh, Capacity Building Institute. For those of us who are new to the call, who haven't heard of this organization that is hosting the call, um, basically, uh, because our host was gone, I failed to do this at the beginning where I should have. <laughs> so now I'd like to tell you a little bit about the Capacity Building Institute, what we uh, what we do here at this organization. And uh, it'll just be a few minutes. And then I think what we'll do after that is turn it over to audience Q&A. So, so while I'm presenting, if you can think up the best questions you've got for our amazing panelists, please do so. Please put it in the chat. Um, and with that said, I'm going to uh, share my screen here. So uh, Capacity Building Institute is uh, a relatively new organization on the scene, uh, the environmental scene in Canada, uh, founded in 2019. And uh, you can see here, this was uh, this picture was taken in the before times where we actually had training in person and uh, now everything's moved to online, uh, partly because of COVID, but also because we are a, a national organization and increasingly uh, having folks approach us from, from all areas of the country. Um, so what do we do? Well, we provide capacity building training and support to small environmental nonprofits. And uh, really the aim is to bolster Canada's environmental sector. So there's a wide range of programs basically available for, for leaders at every level, right? And originally the organization was designed to help executive directors. And then we thought, well, what about senior managers? What about board members and volunteers and other staff? So we have a number of different uh, training programs and, and capacity building initiatives to support folks at different levels and we do have this kind of uh, ambitious goal that 10,000 environmental leaders will be trained in 2030 so by 2030 the idea is basically let's strengthen the sector as a whole as much as we can uh, and why do we do it I mean for the same reasons that everyone else in the environmental sector wakes up in the morning you know climate change nature loss species decline there's some really really serious problems that we're trying to face as a, as a global community and nonprofits are so vitally important to delivering uh, results here uh, and you know they still get you know and you might notice this little stat at the bottom they still get a very relatively small proportion of charitable donations now there's a difference between nonprofits and charities but you know all this is to say I think the sector as a whole there's there's room for the sector to be strengthened to become more resilient and, and we're here to help there uh, we think the environment can deserve all the help it can get, that nonprofits play a vital role, that training really matters uh, and can really be helpful, and that small shops especially can make a huge difference, right? These grassroots groups, we're hearing all these stories about grassroots groups that get started because there's an urgent need in the community. So there's clearly a lot of work that has been done and there's more work that needs to be done. So that's what we're here to, to help serve. And so uh, these are our programs, uh, a bunch of different training programs, some aimed at fundraisers. Uh, we also have this capacity series uh, of webinars each month, the first Monday of each month, uh, you know, with, with breaks on holidays. So we, we, uh, September, I noticed, is Labor Day, so we're moving that ahead. We basically, the first or second Monday of every month, we're talking about how to be an executive director, how to be a board member, understanding that a lot of the folks joining us are running very small shop organizations and and need all the help they can get um so we have some trainers in our uh in our program uh and uh and right now i'm we're, we're actually recruiting for the capacity building certificate program this is our flagship training program the uh, the the one that the picture was from in 2019 um looking for a cohort of about 25 uh students uh from from across the the country to kind of take part and we have had uh, great uh, success over the years with folks who've taken it, like David Miller from Algonquin Adirondacks. Um, he uh, he enjoyed the, the certificate program and, and felt it, it helped the, the, the capacity of that organization. Um, and then, of course, on the intern side, too, we, we do a lot of intern training. You know, first people's first exposure to the sector is sometimes uh, through the internship training program. So another important service offered by Capacity Building Institute. Uh, of course, there are these these videos. We hope you join us for more and more. You can sign up to our mailing list uh, and never miss one. Uh, we're going to bring you amazing speakers, just like the ones uh, who are here tonight. And uh, we just want to say a big word of thanks to all the managers who are, are working on our in our network, as well as the mentors, uh, helping uh, mostly interns 
navigate the uh, the amazing and sometimes very challenging world of the environmental nonprofit sector. Um, and thanks to our board members and our partners as well. Um, so save the dates, though. We want to have you back July 4th, August 8th. And as I mentioned, not on Labor Day, but the week after September 12th, there will be more calls on how to be an executive director and how to be a board member. And then finally, uh, as I mentioned, we are still recruiting for our capacity building certificate program. So if this is of interest, please drop us a line. There's a there's a, a URL there at the bottom for you to contact us. So so that's uh, that's my um little uh, blurb on Capacity Building Institute. If you have questions, please send, send us a line. I'll put my email in the chat. But why don't we now turn to the questions and answers and see if we have questions from folks. So I do see a lot of really great questions here. Now, I saw, you know, I saw Charlie's earlier. So we talked about HR and caring for your staff and balancing it. Um, although if anyone else has, uh, has perspectives on that, please feel free to jump in. Um, I'm going to go random to the bottom. Um, let's see. Catherine asks, have you ever had a feeling like you weren't meant to be an executive director? And how long did it take you to really move past this imposter syndrome? So because Linda was the first one to smile uh, in response to that question, why don't we send it over to you, Linda? Do you feel imposter syndrome? Have you ever felt it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I felt it a lot. Um, yeah, and, and not just at the start. I'm going to be really honest in saying that I, I think I think a lot of people, no matter what you're doing in your working life, you hit those points, right? Where you think, oh, my God, why why am I why am I here? I'm not the right person for this. Um, I, I, I'm, and I'm going to say that's a normal thing. Um, and, you know, usually with some reflection and, and some learning and, and um you, you figure things out and you find your pathway forwards but I but I would say that's just a normal part of the, you especially when you think about the kind of work that we're all doing it's it's challenging work so um, yeah I on on more than one occasion I will fully admit that I have felt like an imposter and <laughs> managed to come to grips with it and, and move on yeah but you, Priyanka, so, so maybe I'll ask two, two variants of this question. One is, are there particular moments, let's just, uh, maybe you've never felt like an imposter, but if you have, are there key moments where you felt like one? Maybe it was it during a fundraising pitch, or maybe you were working on a strategic plan. Are there any moments where you felt particularly kind of like, I don't know if I, if I should be doing this? Um, and then the other question is, how did you overcome that? Yeah, um, I constantly feel like this it's I don't know if it's something that you ever really get over but I think it's something that you can you know prove to yourself that you know you deserve a seat at the table um you know this call is a great example of that uh how to be an executive director what a leading title I don't know I don't know what the answer is for how to be an executive director and I certainly don't have all the answers every time I get up to do a speaking engagement where I'm talking about something that you know I spend every day working in doesn't matter who it is or what the room is I feel anxious. I feel like someone else is more qualified to talk about it until I go do the thing and I realize I have something to contribute and I'm reminded of, you know, the perspective that I bring, um, which doesn't need to be compared to the perspective that others bring. It just is. Um, and so I don't know. This is this is a tough one for me. I truly don't think of myself as an ED like the uh, I know that I'm an ED when, when I get introduced as an ED. But otherwise, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm just doing my job. Um, I'm trying to show up every day the best that I can. I'm trying to guide and support my teams the best that I can. And I'm, you know, invested in the work that we're, we're co-creating. Um, and so that's how I get through that. And I'm also just really honest with my team. Um, when I, you know, don't have all the answers, I don't pretend that I do. Um, I'll often say, let's, you know, I need time to plan to make a plan if I can't, you know, figure out the answer to, to what they're asking for. Um, and then also to know, you know, like, who are your allies outside of the organization? So it's great if you have someone to confide in in the organization where you can, you know, open up and be vulnerable, but um, not all of us have that. And so to know, like, who can you confide in, whether that's a really strong relationship you have with a board member um, or whether that's a coach. Um, you know, I, I know, Sabrina, you'd kind of tease this on LinkedIn, but uh, I had the, you know, privilege of someone offering their time um, for a year when we were going through a very difficult time um, after we lost all that, that funding from the Ontario government, we were quite shaky um, for what would happen to our organization. And I just come back from maternity leave. I was now executive director with my co-founder having left. 
what do I know to how to pull this organization out? I don't have any of these relationships. I'm not equipped to do this job. And, you know, having that um, coach there to help me reflect on my leadership, what mattered to me and to help me sort of build that confidence and self sense of self is really powerful. Um, and the kind of compass I developed through that coaching has been a touchstone for me whenever, you know, I feel that sense of um, imposter syndrome. So I see Sabrina in the chat. So Sabrina, it sounds like you want to second that motion. Okay. Now, Sabrina, I don't know if you have uh, anything particular to add on imposter syndrome. Uh, please let me know if you do. If you don't, I have a question from the Q&A specifically for you. Okay. So here it is. Sabrina, when did you hire that admin assistant or your fundraiser? When so, uh, so much of what we're doing is uh, grant-based, it's always uh, tough to hire those more operational roles. Can you tell us, was there like a threshold? Were you looking for, you know, X number of dollars a year and then we hire a fundraiser? What was the story there? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Carolyn, thanks for the question. Uh, too late. <laughs> I hired her too late. Um, uh, you know, I think I think it should be well to realize that I needed that. And, and similarly with the fundraiser, we did talk about the fundraiser earlier with the board. Um, and so we did end up hiring somebody a bit earlier. And, and even that was not perfect. Um, I think that what I had wanted versus what I got were, were different because her skill set, she had worked with sort of a big consultancy and she had worked um, at a very strategic level on fundraising. And I realized I need somebody who knew how to think strategically about fundraising, but who was willing to boots on the ground, go ask for money and like had not recognized that 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 it would be hard to do that if you're somebody who has just always been hired to do like a more strategic role. Um, so it took me a while to realize what I needed. There is a certain amount of when we reach a certain amount of money, but you know, frankly, like I think that an admin person for most of us is would be very helpful. Um, and as I say, for me, it took me a while to recognize that I didn't have, that I lacked in certain areas that could be improved by having somebody who could focus in on those areas and keep me on track. And then I could have a little bit of freedom to think about um, other things. Yeah, I, I think that, I think this falls into sort of, I think Linda or Priyanka was saying as well, that like, that to me, that to me, those, those thoughts, those having the breadth of time to think about that, that falls into the sort of strategic planning bucket, which includes strategically thinking about our organizations um, and the whole spider web of who's involved and what their skills are from board to volunteers to staff. Um, and then teasing out what's missing, right? Like that's that's something we think about strategic planning. We often think about like, what is, the, what is our goal in five years in this programmatic area? I think we also need to think about what do we want for our organization to thrive. Um, and the last thing I'll say, and that includes like staff, that includes like volunteer, how do we take care of our volunteers? How do we thank our board members? How do we make sure, how do we have transitions for our board members and our staff? How do we make sure that stuff is all in place? The comment earlier about knowledge sharing is so important. Like how do we make sure that not one person is holding keys to everything? Um, and there's another part of your question that I can't remember. What was it? Did I answer? Maybe I answered it. Yeah, I'm looking at it here. Uh, when did you hire the admin assistant or your fundraiser? And basically, the next statement is that it, you know, it's hard to the know. The funding part. Yeah. 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 So just the other thing I was going to say is we have to stop being afraid of telling our funders they need to fucking fund the stuff that keeps the doors open. I'm so tired of funders saying you can only have 10% admin. That is bullshit. I'm sorry to use that language, but it makes me so angry that funders are still talking about admin, including paying your staff as like something that shouldn't go above 20%. That's ridiculous. Who do they think is going to get the work done? So I think we need to get a bit courageous when we're having our conversations with our funders and say, look, and it's not all funders, right? Some funders are actually very good about this. We have to say, look, like, no, we're not going to pay starvation wages to our staff because you don't want to fund it. Like we have to tell them to, to change that narrative. Like a lot of the work that we're doing, especially in the environmental space, some of us are doing things like land conservation and tree planting. And we do have hard costs associated. A lot of us are doing things like Linda or Priyanka that is like work that is people changing things for the better. And those people should be paid fairly. And those people um, shouldn't have to justify that to our funders. So I, I will say that because I think it's really important. In the meantime, work the cost of your fundraiser into your grant proposal. Work the cost of your admin assistant into your grant proposal. They are doing work that is helping you do the deliverables in that grant. Anyways, I'm going to step off my angry soapbox. Uh, 
now. But that's how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Let's go talk to Eon. And uh, I, I see in the chat, I, if that's not the, uh, the video that I remember, I think it is. It is a really, really uh, interesting one. So thanks to uh, Mark uh, for posting that. Um, so, but it actually, it, this segues nicely into uh, a related question from Kathy. And uh, maybe I'll just, I'll just throw it open and see who wants to take it on. So it's really around funding, right? How do you maintain ongoing funding for an ED position uh, especially, I think, in the early days, over the years, you know, grants are up and down, right? They're 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 intermittent. Um, how do we how do we ensure that we have funding for something that requires ongoing support? Anyone want to take that one on? Linda, I, I could start. I, I, this is going to take us right back to my conversations earlier about looking at that unrestricted funding and, and building that base of supporters. I know for us as an organization, I mean, I'm happily funded both by, you know, do- donations from people who care about the work that we do, but also grants on specific projects. So for me, it enables me to, to do what I was talking about earlier, you know, keeping my hands dirty in the issues, um, but but also getting a regular check. It, again, that it's not easy. So I'm not going to lie, you know, over my time in my role in the organization, I haven't always been employed full time. It's It's been part of the challenge um, with an organization and, and the ebbing and flowing of funding. Um, but I want to say, and, I, and I'm saying this out loud more and more, so I'm glad that Sabrina opened up <laughs> this topic of conversation. Our, our work in the environmental sector is undervalued, and I think we all know that. I, I don't think there's anyone you know, on this panel right now who would disagree with that. So it really feels as though we we need to figure out collectively how to how to push for that to change. And and if it means you know funders being comfortable with at least fifteen, if not twenty percent admin, um, if it means um, helping funders to understand that we also need, you know, basic um, capacity for, for operating our organizations. You, you know, even when you compare our sector to other sectors, I always get the sense that um, the environmental sector is really not being offered those kinds of supports. And, and it's important, right? I mean, if we weren't worrying so much about that basic funding um, as much as we have to, um, it, it would enable us to focus that much more energy on what's most important, and that's tackling all of those environmental issues that are happening around us. Thanks, Linda. Now, Priyanka, did you? I, I think your hand went up right after Linda's. Did you want to take on that question? And if not, I've got one specifically for you. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in and say here too that um, yes, for sure, having a long-standing base of partners makes a difference. Um, so find people that are really passionate about your cause and can invest. Um, for us, we've, we're really lucky to build relationships with some foundations that are willing to, you know, not ask questions about operational funding, as an example, because they understand that it's important to our work. And um, I think we're starting to see in some social innovation circles, anyways, some jargony words that you know things are changing for to move more towards trust-based philanthropy, maybe not fast enough. Um, what I wanted to raise, though, is also just the importance of the board um, in this in this conversation. So, um, you know, oftentimes if boards are disconnected from the reality of how organizations are actually functioning, you know, not privy to how much overtime is the ED doing, not privy to how does the, you know, constant ebb and flow of staff impact the ability to carry out the mission, the board can actually put a lot of pressure on ED and staff for what's the next project or oh, I'm really excited about this thing let's go after this shiny nugget and that makes it really tough for the ED to be able to make the case that we can't actually if like if we go after this thing we don't have the capacity or we need to be raising more money to do x or you know that's lovely but we haven't gotten to y um, and I think, you know, having a board that is able to understand and support and also play an active role in, in raising those funds. Um, it can't just rest all on the shoulders of the ED. We need champions and supporters. And if that's, you know, opening the door to a conversation that allows you to raise funding or, um, you know, helping to take some of that lift off of the ED's shoulders, it's so important um, as part of longevity for the organization. So. We've got five minutes left, and I think what we'll do with the remaining time is see if anyone has the answer to our question, uh, which is how do you balance your mission with good governance? Any any parting words of wisdom uh, for our crowd uh, here today? Uh, Sabrina, why don't you take a crack at it? Any, any thoughts as we wrap up? I mean, 
I think these things are connected, right? Like our missions can't happen if we don't have good governance. If we aren't, um, if we don't have an effective board, it's going to get away in the way of our ability to achieve our mission. If we don't take care of our people and they leave all the time, we're not going to be able to achieve what we want to do. If we work ourselves to the bone as leaders and try to take everything on our shoulders, we can't do our work. Um, so I think that that's the thing that, um, I always think about is that is that and then the second piece I would say is that it's going to be highly imperfect in both cases both the mission is going to need massaging over the years um, you know it, it, it you might need to switch direction you know your experience of losing your funding I'm sure maybe you have to reconsider what you're doing right like the mission is going to change and your good governance can support support that shift and similarly you're always going to go through things and realize that your governance isn't good enough I when I was the Green Pack of ED, I think when I left, we still didn't have an HR policy. And I was like, well, that would be a thing that would be useful. You know, like, because it just didn't happen, because there just wasn't time, or I prioritized different things, or I prioritized the wrong things, right? You could, you're never gonna get it perfect. The balls are always gonna move a little bit under the couch, and that's okay, right? Somebody's, maybe the next ED will come in and pick them up. Um, so that's what I'd say. I think those two are important, they're interlinked, and they're going to be highly imperfect and you just got to do the best that you can. Priyanka, anything to add there? No, I, I would agree. I, I think, you know, not to let perfect be the enemy of good, right? So, you know, the idea that if you don't have something now, you may not have the perfect policy, you may not have the perfect succession plan. What can you put in place? Um, you know, and sometimes I've been in conversations with staff where we've been really energized to tackle this really nagging thing that we that's never urgent but always important. And we've taken an hour together to workshop something that has been good enough and fills a gap that someone else will come and build on or, or um, will make better. So, um, yeah, I would strongly encourage that. And then just to kind of echo that for me, what's really made a difference is having those structures that help pull me out of the reactive and and force me to to make sure that I'm also looking Looking at the proactive, whether that's quarterly board meetings where the board is helping to hold me accountable, whether that's an annual plan where we're tracking and measuring goals that we're working towards, or whether that's staff that's tasked with a particular responsibility and they're going to make sure that they're getting the support that they need in order to move that forward. So that's the way that I kind of counterbalance my tendency, which is let's go after the really great shiny stuff and do bold, ambitious work. How about you, Linda? How do you balance mission and good governance? Yeah, I, I, I love what most of Sabrina and Priyanka have said, I think they've really captured it nicely. And I would just add to it, I, I think you never want to lose sight of organizational agility and, and that ability to, um, I don't want to use the word pivot, but I'm going to say it to, you know, to, 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 to move and, and adjust as you need to, you know, as, as challenges are being thrown at you, but also as the issues evolve and change. And, and then I would add to that, you know, in terms of mission and governance, you never want to lose that ability um, for people to be passionate about what they're working on. You want, you always want that to be part of what you're doing and to create a space where you can have meaningful conversation and people who come to work for your organization are feeling like they're doing meaningful work. I, 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 I could say just from my own personal experience, that's been probably the most important thing about being able to um, work in this sector is, is that feeling that the work that we're doing is, is, is meaningful and impactful out there in the real world. Well, thank you to everyone. Uh, we've got uh, 15 seconds left, so I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank the panelists for joining us. Thank you to Hannah for all the operations and technical support. And thank you to everyone for joining us. If you uh, want to catch up on this later, it will be on our YouTube channel. If you want to get in touch, visit us at capacitybuilding.ca and you can find uh, our coordinates there. Hannah and I are there. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you and we look forward to seeing you at the next Capacity Series webinar. Thanks everyone for joining us and I hope you all have a great evening. Recording stopped. Recording stopped. Thank you, Capacity Building Seminars. Just quickly go to this calendar and read what this says. Let's see, Capacity Building Institute. How to be a board member, how to turn one grant into 20, why hearing no is a good thing, how I almost lost my job, tips for nonprofits. Very exciting work that they're doing here. And the thing that we were just listening to was the 
how to be an executive director, uh, ED, how to be an ED. And that was join the conversation with Sam Laprade and Rob Barnes. So you're listening to the Green Antler Waterfowl podcast recorded in lovely Tassas, British Columbia. And thank you for being a friend. Bye. Thank you.